Baseball fans used to sit by the radio listening to their favorite major league team. Then along came television to bring us the visual image. But today we have digital technology that brings us so many rapid changes it sometimes makes your head swim. You can see any game you want now, streaming live on the internet, and voila, even on your phone app. The digital world also has brought us a raft of new statistics to help us analyze our favorite players and our favorite sports. I'm Bob Long. We want to welcome you to Stats and Stories. It's a program where we look at the statistics behind the stories and the stories behind the statistics. And our topic today is how the digital technology has complicated the life of sports journalists. Before we talk to our special guest, Stats and Stories reporter Max McCauley talked with a couple of sports journalists about how they've been impacted by digital reporting and sports analytics. Modern athletes are jumping higher, running faster, and playing better than ever. Year after year, athletes break seemingly impossible records and compete at higher levels. To keep up, journalists and statisticians are changing their games as well. Modern sports reporters are adapting to master the immediacy of new online digital media, and statisticians are measuring and analyzing more complex metrics to try to figure out what makes today's athletes so great. Chris Rose is a sportscaster for the MLB and NFL networks. He can attest to many of the ways that digital media has recently changed the face of sports journalism. Five years ago, people who cover the beat, they didn't have to worry about Twitter because, you know what, the next day in the paper, people would read it then. But now people have a need to know the information right now. Rose uses digital media to keep his shows as up-to-date as possible. I'm getting ready for my baseball show today. What I do is check Twitter because all the beat writers have already talked to the manager. They've made a run through the clubhouse. So anything interesting is there in 140 characters for me to absorb. And boom, it's at my fingertips. And it's a tremendous resource for me. And we find good stories for our show that way. Alex Butler is a contract writer for the Miami Herald in Florida. Like many other newspapers, the Herald has had to expand to virtual outlets as well. There was a lot of focus now on the digital side of it with the online media. I've come to really appreciate that where I get to uh, incorporate my Twitter account a lot and talk about the athletes and tag the athletes and engage the fan bases and communities. Butler points out that online technologies have created two-way information channels between media outlets and their audiences. We use different websites that use algorithms to see how many people are viewing our, our articles and how they're interacting with the article specifically, uh, what they're clicking on within the article how much time you're spending on the article. It's much more interactive now, and there's a lot more things to think about than just subject matter. It's how you actually write about the subject matter. One problem Butler has with the digital age is when the public sides with the memes over the media. I see people blame the media for everything, and I get kind of frustrated with things like that when people are starting to believe pictures with text over them over uh, quality journalism because they think that the media is pure evil. Chris Rose has worries about digital media as well. He says the focus on immediacy has shifted both readers and writers away from focusing on factuality. When you have social media, people are going to read things the way they want to. The danger of it is not everything gets checked the way it should. Rose also says he likes the argument arising from the new emphasis on deeper statistics. Well, we really live in an analytical world now. It's just a part of how we evolve, and I think it's been a fascinating discussion. You know, there's just more information for people, and I'm I'm a big fan of that. Alex Butler agrees. He says statistics have the ability to see things that our eyes might miss. I'm kind of a statistics guy. I think it's interesting to tell a different story than the obvious one. Butler says it's still important for media outlets to tailor their content to their audience. 
different newspapers, I think, have different goals when that's concerned. Like a small area like Dayton, people there might care less about every statistic in the game and more about the story about a particular player that they find fascinating. Chris Rose says most sports organizations are still trying to figure out how to best apply these new measures. The argument is, well, how do you build a team and how much do you put on metrics? The world is starting to realize that there's a lot more to sports than just scoring points. And Rose says some teams are willing to pay millions for it. Now, Jason Hayward, who has been in one All-Star game, who hasn't hit more than, I think, 16 homers in a year, who hasn't driven in, I think, more than like 75 runs, got almost $200 million. Well, he's a 26-year-old outfielder, the best defensive outfielder, according to the metrics, who runs the bases very well, according to the metrics. So how much do you put into valuing that as opposed to what your eyes just tell you on a baseball diamond or what a guy brings into a clubhouse? heart, the ability to bring guys together. All of that has a dollar value. We just don't know what it is. For Stats and Stories, this is Max McCauley. Thanks, Max. And joining me now on Stats and Stories are our regular panelists, Miami University's media journalism and film chair, Richard Campbell, and our statistics department chair, John Baylor. And our special guest today is national sports columnist and commentator, Terrence Moore. He's a regular contributor to ESPN's Outside the Lines, CNN, uh, MSNBC, and the NFL Network. He also writes for Earth.com, MLB.com, and in his spare time. He also teaches a journalism course here at Miami University, his alma mater. Terrence, welcome to the show. Thank you. want to go back in time because, you know, when I'm older, you know, older folks, we always go back in time sure. and, and look at the way things used to be. But, you know, you spent, what, about 25 years at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. And back in the old days, hey, if you were a sports writer, you were a sports writer and you wrote your article or column, that was it. Today, there's so many other things you have to think about. Yeah, they really are. And it was mentioned earlier about uh, Twitter, for instance, uh, any kind of social media outlet. Uh, you've, got, uh, you've got to be uh, very good at shooting video. You know, you, you, it's more than just the writing aspect of it that you've got to be involved in. And that's why, if you look at it, when I first came out of Miami uh, back in uh, May of 1978, you basically had uh, sports writers, the average age was deceased. Okay, <laughs> now the average age of a sports writer is uh, like like right out of the baby crib, because you got to be able to do all these things. You've got to got to be able to to keep up with uh, modern technology, and it's it's a whole different world. Sadly, I know so many journalists that I knew that have left the business because they just got frustrated with things that they felt detracted from the quality of the work that they did because now they got to, as you said, shoot video, do all these other things that, that they didn't used to have to do. Oh, sure. You know, and, and the other aspect, too, is that uh, it's different with the players. Back when I was first starting out, uh, you could really get a chance to know players and know coaches. But because of so many different reasons now, you really don't get a chance to, to, to know the guys. And a lot of that goes back to what we're talking about with the social media. I'll give an example. I had a long talk the other day with a guy named Claude Felton. Claude Felton is the sports information director at the University of Georgia. And Claude is the last of a dying breed of SIDs, as we call them. And I've often told Claude that I, I want to come and take his temperature every 10 minutes to make sure <laughs> that he can be around a little bit longer. And one of the things that Claude and I were talking about is that in the old days, you knew who all the sports writers were. You knew what they were all about. Now you've got all these entities, all these Internet sites. You've got all of these uh, different uh, uh, sports outlets. You don't know who's who. And at any given time, they can tweet something out there 
And if you are like a sports information director or a public relations guy in the National Football League or, or, or what have you, you don't know where it came from. Whereas before, if you can see the right over there from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution or the Cincinnati Inquirer and call them in and say, hey, that's wrong, could you correct this? Now you've got all these anonymous sources out there and, and people, it's very difficult to track down. Richard Campbell, I'll go to you for the next question. Terrence, good to have you here. With all of the, the transition you've made from the print world to the digital age, I know one thing that, uh, that I hear you talk about is the importance of storytelling. Uh, as a way to sort of <clears throat> cut through and get an audience, attract readers. What has changed for you in terms of how you think about and figure out what the story is that you're going to tell? Storytelling is huge. It's always, it always has been huge from a newspaper standpoint, magazine standpoint, the TV standpoint. But with the society we have today, where everything is quick and easy, the storytelling has gotten gotten quicker and easier because of the attention span uh, and it's because of and let's go back to the twitter phase here you know you've only got so many characters what is it, 140 150 characters in order to write something and that has transcended down to everything in journalism quick and easy i write for one of the entities i work for is mlb.com and uh, i just had a discussion with uh, one of the bosses the other day and he was telling me that uh, they love what i do but can, can you give us more of these uh, top 10 things, like the top 10 reasons <laughs> Willie Mays was the greatest center fielder of all time, the top 15 reasons why, uh, you know, Candlestick Park was the worst ballpark in, in Major League Baseball history and that sort of thing. Quick and easy, you know, like to, to just, just get it, uh, get to the point and move on because that's the attention span again or lack thereof of the reader and the listener and the viewer. John Baylor, go to you for the next question. So you're, you're talking about the stories becoming quick and easy, but that runs completely in contrast to the amount of information that's available to tell these stories. You know, you start to see information like all the pitch locations, the speed, the you know the the summaries of every single pitch of every single game. We're hearing about now uh, chips being sewn into uniforms, so you have GPS locations, you have true measurements of speed or the distance traveled during the course of play. So, you know, that's, that seems like a real pressure running against this. You know, the pressure to simplify is, being, is running counter to this pressure of more information that might have an interesting story embedded in it. So how do you, how do you address that? Yeah, and, and that's another good question there. And, you know, and, and, and I'll give you a bigger picture there. One of the eternal problems, and I call it a problem that you have in journalism, particularly sports journalism, is that, and, and, and to get, get even more finite, baseball, okay? <laughs> Sports has always involved a bunch of numbers, and baseball in particular. But as you just pointed out, the numbers have gotten more advanced, more plentiful than ever before. So one of the biggest problems you have in journalism, and I was going to say young journalists, but it's also us old-timers too, is getting too much information out there because it, 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 your brain will explode, okay? Because right. right. you, you, you always that constant battle as to what can you do to get the point across, but not too much. And my philosophy is always is, is get that one big thing and hammer it home. For instance, uh, you take a, 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 somebody like, uh, oh, let's say Chapman, 
the reliever for for the Reds is now with the Yankees. You know, this guy's throwing like 100-plus miles per hour, okay? And there's all kind of other metrics and and statistics you can use to to describe how great he is or what he does. But you know what? What people know is that he throws really hard. (laughs) The only thing they care about is the fact that he throws over 100 miles per hour. So you could just concentrate on that. You know, how many times does he top 100 miles per hour? Just hammer that home and forget everything else. You know, at least in one, one piece, you'll be just fine. I think that brings up an interesting point, though, too, because one of the other things I see, and and we talked about this the other day in in a news context, but in sports, too, we've always had some really great uh, investigative journalism that's been done. And it seems like, as we're talking about this time crunch, that's kind of going by the wayside, which is kind of a scary thing to me as a journalist, that uh, we don't take time to to really dig deeply into, like you you do some work for uh, Outside the Lines, which kind of does that kind of journalism. Are you kind of concerned that because of that emphasis on the here and now, get it done fast, uh, get it out there on social media or or on the internet, that we're we're missing some of that? I I want to give you a classic example, because there's perfect timing to ask that that, that question. Uh, I just taught a a course for uh, Professor Campbell here earlier today, and uh, one of the questions uh, involved, what was the thing that I was most proudest uh, to have done in my journalistic career? And one of which was back in 1982 at the San Francisco Examiner, I mentioned to the sports editor the decline in numbers of African Americans in baseball. This is 1982. This is way beyond this, before this became fashionable, okay? And I had such enlightened uh, leadership back then that the sports editor said, why don't you take a month off and just get into the numbers and figure out what's going on here, okay? And at the time, and let's jump ahead. Right now, it's slightly less than 8% of Major League Baseball is African-American, okay? Back in 82, when I did the research, it was slightly less than 20%. And so I started getting into the numbers. I started getting reports from different scouts, and one of the scouts gave me a scouting report that had a slot for race on it, which was shouldn't do that okay (laughs) the nba didn't do it the nfl didn't do it the nhl didn't do it baseball did and all heck broke loose when i pointed this out and this piece won a lot of awards national state and 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 that sort sort of thing but i needed that month to do the research on the numbers to find out exactly what was happening not only in major league baseball with various teams and through the years i would dare say in 2016 that's not going to (laughs) happen Yeah. Because you're not going to be given the time. They're not going to tell you, take a month off. I was covering the San Francisco Giants at the time. You're not going to t- have a beat writer take a month off to do that and, and to give it the time that it's worth outside of perhaps an outside the lines. And that's why I like working for ESPN Outside the Lines. You're listening to Stats and Stories, where we always talk about the statistics behind the stories and the stories behind the statistics. And our topic today is the digital technology and how it's impacting the life of sports journalists. I'm Bob Long. Our regular panelists are Miami University Statistics Department Chair John Baylor and Media Journalism Film Chair Richard Campbell. And our special guest, national sports columnist and commentator Terrence Moore. He just mentioned outside the lines, but also does a lot of uh, work with CNN, MSNBC, and the NFL Network, and I'll go to Richard Campbell for our next question for Terrence. Terrence, you've you've made a transition from being a reporter, you know, documenting, verifying, you know, going out and finding out what happened, to more analysis, opinion writing. Um, talk about how documentation, verifying, the the kind of skills you had as a reporter 
contributes to your role today where, where you're doing much more analysis and opinion writing? You know, one of the things I always tell young writers is that the reporting never stops. And that's one of my biggest pet peeves of modern journalism is the lack of reporting. And you've got to have reporting. Uh, back when I was a sports writer, just a regular sports writer, I was noted for being a very good reporter, having a lot of sources. And the same now as a columnist. I break a lot of stories. And it has not stopped. You, and, and, and one of the things that I'm proudest of, people ask me, you know, in 30-plus in years in the business, nearly 40 years, that's why I got the gray hair. You can't see it over the radio, but I got a lot of gray hair, <laughs> is that in nearly 40 years of doing this, I've never had an, an extended problem with any report, any, uh, uh, any player, any coach, or any front office person. They'll blow up for a little while, but and that's because they know that I've researched and I have, have my facts correct, and they can't argue with, with my point of view. And again, that goes back to numbers a lot of uh, times as far as proving things to be correct. And that holds true whether you're talking about opinion writing, or at least I said it should hold true, whether you're talking about opinion writing or regular writing. You still have to have, to have the reporting aspect. So for me, I believe it's all the same thing. The difference is that with the, from a common standpoint, you're just giving your opinion, but it's still backed up with facts. John Baylor, we'll go to you. So, you know, as, as you look back on, on the sports that you've covered, I'm curious if you'd consider what, what sports do you think, I mean, other than baseball, which has kind of the longest history sure. with the analytics part of, the, of applications, what sports have, been most, have most benefited from the additional data that have been collected and what have least benefited from the additional data that are being collected? And when you think about this, you know, think about it in light of you know, the stories maybe that emerge from it. Well, you know, I, I think that contrary to what people think, all these sports have benefited from, from analytics. And, and I'm going to give you an example. One of the biggest things that's happening in the, in the, in the NBA right now, uh, and uh, it's, it's a secret story. Matter of fact, I've just talked myself into a column. I'm going to write this next week <laughs> <laughs> in the NBA, is that you've got this old-school NBA that goes by the eyeball test. I think somebody mentioned that earlier on one of the tapes that you had about uh, how a guy looks, what a guy is doing. But now you've got this new system of analytics, and this is Basically, uh, the Houston Rockets probably are the first team that kind of really uh, brought this to light, is that uh, about how important a three-point shot is, for instance, okay? And, and they have, have uh, all but said that we don't care about the medium-range shot. You know, we want three-point shooters. We want either three-point shooters or layups. That's it, okay? And if you can't do those two things, we don't want you, all right? And this was kind of a radical uh, aspect. As a matter of fact, they started getting rid of the Houston Rockets their mainstream type of coaches and start bringing in these number guys that can start analyzing guys in college who are able to shoot shots from a certain distance. And, and if they couldn't do it, then we don't, we, don't, we don't care how good you are. We don't, don't want you. That has spread across the NBA. It's become an epidemic now. Teams that were fighting that now are part of that re revolution. So that's just the NBA. Uh, National Football League, certainly the numbers have always been there. I mean, you look at what goes on in the NBA, NFL scouting combines every year in February, okay? Uh, and I, I think one of the nicknames is that they call it the, the world's biggest underwear show, you know, where they're <laughs> looking at these guys and they're testing them, all kind of things. But numbers are huge. You know, uh, how high can you jump? How, how high can you run? How, how You know, whatever it, it's going to be. So whatever sport you name is there. You know, how, how fast can you serve in tennis? Uh, so it's just it's, it's all a matter of how you want to use the numbers. 
Do you, do you think we've tipped too far? I mean, the the old eyeball test or the kinds of qualities that a player might have that aren't necessarily measurable in those ways. Are we losing sight of that, or or is the pendulum will the pendulum swing back, or is or do you think things have changed? Forever. That, that's a very good question, and and the first part is yes. We've gone way, way too far, and I'm going to give you two examples. One, uh, old time. I, I covered the Oakland Raiders back 35 years ago, back when they were the real Oakland Raiders. I, I don't know who <laughs> these people are now. Uh, but the real Oakland Raiders with Al Davis, some of the football fans probably have heard of Al Davis. And uh, Al Davis was very much about the eyeball test. You know, he could tell whether Cal was good or not, and they, they, those Raiders did very well. Okay, Now I'm going to give you a baseball example. Uh, there's a guy named Dusty Baker. Dusty Baker has just recently been hired by the Washington Nationals. Should have been hired by somebody a long time ago. He's been out of baseball for two years. This is a guy who is a three-time uh, National League Manager of the Year uh, and a guy who's, who's turned teams around instantly, but he couldn't find the job for two years after he was fired by the Cincinnati Reds because he was known as an eyeball test guy and not as a numbers guy. So that was being held against him. As a matter of fact, there are a lot of people who think, including Dusty Baker, that one of the reasons he, because I know Dusty very well, that he was fired by the Reds was because the Reds didn't think he could get up to the times and get, become a numbers guy. Okay, Well, they fired Dusty Baker, and, and look what, what they got in return. <laughs> I think they probably want Dusty Baker back right now. So, so to answer your question, yes, we've gone too far because it's, it's, we're seeing a guy like a Dusty Baker and the Dusty Bakers of the world who are perfectly fine managers or other fine coaches who are being shoved out. John Baylor, go back to you. You know, I, I think you're right. I, I mean, I think that's probably the either either extreme is probably not desirable. That that these are this is complementary information in, as I look at it. You know, as I think about there's there is there's a human element that's that that you're gauging in with, with some dimensions that you can't quantify. But there's there's complementary information or maybe supplementary information that you can get from some of this quantification of of performance. I mean, now the question is, are you measuring the right things? Yes. I mean, so you know, this this kind of mindless number thinking isn't going to do anything if you're not looking at something that's meaningful and relevant for performance and outcome. Well, yeah, and, and to piggyback on that, let's go to another sport: college football. Uh, the most dominant team in the history of college football is present to this right now. Okay. And it really hurts me to say that because I was born and raised in South Bend, Indiana, University of Notre Dame. But <laughs> I have to say right now you can make a case that the University of Alabama has the most dominant college football team of all time given that this is an era of parity, yet they've still been able to dominate. Okay, Nick Saban being the head coach there, Nick Saban is a combination of both, as you say. I mean, he's a guy that's very much into the eyeball test, but he's also into a lot of numbers. One of the things that, uh, that I saw the other day is Alabama, and I wish I could know the number off the top of my head, has got the largest support staff of any team in college football. You know, people think in terms of a college football program or college basketball program in terms of just coaching. There's all these other people that they're bringing aboard now, number peop- numbers people, even besides people in the trainer staff, staff, training staff and what have you. And, and Nick Saban has started an arms race. I live in Atlanta, Georgia right now. And one of the things that I'm always ripping the University of Georgia because they're getting all this talent and they've gotten as much talent as anybody in college football, but they've not won a national championship since 1980. They have not won an SEC title since 2005. Okay, but they keep getting all this talent. So they fired their previous coach, Mark Ritt, hired a new coach now in Kirby Smart. One of the first things that Kirby, Kirby Smart did 
was get all these other people, numbers people and what have you. They've increased their uh, their football support staff something like 75% since he's been hired in a matter of months. Guess where Kirby Smart was before he came to the University of Georgia? Alabama as a defensive coordinator. You're listening to Stats and Stories, and we're focusing on our how digital technology and analytics and sports, how all of that has changed the life of sports journalists. And our special guest today is Terrence Moore, who's a national sports columnist and commentator. I'm Bob Long, our regular panelist on our show, our Miami University Media Journalism and Film Chair, Richard Campbell, and Statistics Department Chair, John Baylor. We kind of touched on this, Terrence, a little bit ago, but... Twitter, of course, and and the whole social media realm has really changed things, not always for the better. (laughs) There's a lot of things that get tweeted out there that some people would love to retract, but they can't. But let's talk about how the involvement of athletes in getting their message out, rather than letting people like you tell the story, how that's impacting sports journalism today as well. Yeah, well, you know, it's 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 killing our craft. And uh, I'm an old timer. I, I believe in old time journalism. Give me the old time religion. Give me the old time <laughs> journalism. Good reporting. Good solid uh, basics. And I hate to say it, it's going, going, almost gone. And Twitter is a big cause of that. One of the 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 old time uh, edicts of journalism is get at least two sources before you write something. That's gone. Because somebody can go out there and tweet anything, and if you're uh, uh, even in mainstream journalism, you're forced to fo- follow behind that because it's out there. Okay, people don't care about you know you getting two sources anymore, and it's caused all kinds of uh, problems with that. The other other problem that Twitter has caused in my profession is that uh, it's made it very difficult now for mainstream media to break anything, because if you're an athlete, and I think of Calvin Johnson wide receiver, great wide receiver for the Detroit Lions, when he announced his retirement or, or rumors thereof, uh, Twitter, Yeah. okay? Mm-hmm. So, I mean, this is it's not the Detroit Free Press or the Detroit News. He can just go to his Twitter thing, oh, I'm thinking about retiring or, you know, about whatever. So how, how do you react to that? <laughs> Tiger Woods, okay? When Tiger Woods wants to announce anything, first of all, he announces on his website, okay? So he's not calling a press conference, you know, and giving his life – Lately, I'm, I'm sure he's not going to call me. <laughs> but he's putting it on Twitter. He's putting it on his website. So it, it really has hurt us in a bad way. I, I was going to say, it just seems to me that a lot of times that's a way to escape the scrutiny that yes. you pointed out would come with a press conference where I can ask you about some other stuff you might sure. not want to talk about. You're pretty much allowing, you know, you're pretty much channeling it. Here, this is my announcement. You control the message. Well, you control you, the message. You know, and let, let's take it out. <laughs> you don't. Let's take it out of the, the, the sports realm. Let's yeah. look at what's happening in presidential uh, politics. Right. Who who is who is the number one tweeter in America now? Donald Trump. Donald Trump has figured out a way to get his message across. It's just to wake up in the morning and just, even though it's misspelling all, all the way through it, <laughs> just tweet whatever he wants to tweet. You know, and and and, and, he's, and it's out there. You know, whereas. Certainly 20 years ago, forget 20 years ago, the last presidential election cycle, you still had to go through the mainstream, mainstream media. So this has changed us forever. John Baylor, go to you. Okay. In your practice, how much interactions have you had with the analytics staff of different professional teams or collegiate teams? Have you ever, as part of the story, as you've dug in, have you ever had the, any interactions with these new new offices? You know, that that's another uh, good question here. And the answer to your question is very, very little. And, and I want to tell you, and there's two reasons for that. 
Number one, and, 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 and by the way, I mentioned the Houston Rockets. The Atlanta Hawks have become another one of those teams, and I'm based, based in Atlanta. And, uh, and there's a big controversy about the Atlanta Hawks about you know, how much weight they're giving to these people. But to answer your question, first of all, they make it very difficult for you to talk to these yeah. people. It's proprietary development. They don't. Yeah, want to, they, they don't, don't want you to change. talk. They don't want you to talk to them, and and then they're they're very much. And, and and I tell you, I know the names, but I can't. And as good a reporter as I am, I take pride in being a good reporter. I can't tell you the faces of who these guys are for the Atlanta Hawks. I know the other guys, but they're 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 off in the distance. So that's number one. Number two, and sorry from a combo standpoint, I don't know if I really want to talk to them that much because because again, it gets too uh, you know. Uh, weighted down to try to explain that to, to your reader. Uh, you know, it's 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 just too bulky to to be able to do that. Uh, I would I would think that maybe a beat writer more so somewhat, but even they would have a little problem just trying to get, uh, you know, just too involved with them. Sure. Thank you, Rich Campbell. Uh, talk a little bit about. I mean, part of this was discouraging, right, for young reporters who want to be sports reporters, sure. and what they're they're facing a world in which stories are broken not by reporters but by the athletes themselves. So, what kind of advice do you give, uh, you know, somebody aspiring? Because you're you are kind sure. of an inspirational figure, and a lot of people, I think, uh, admire your career and uh, and want that kind of career. And uh, so what do you tell them? Well, I got three pieces of advice. One is drop back seven yards and punt. <laughs> Number two, do something else. But they, seriously, seriously, folks, I, I would say just keep fighting the good fight. This is my constant message. I, I, I think that if you do things the right way, whatever they are, in the long run, for you, it's going to work out. Keep practicing solid journalism. That's the only answer. Because if you give in to this other stuff, then there's no chance. There's no chance for you. There's no chance for, for the profession. So keep doing, keep keep going to great schools like Miami University and, and taking great classes that we teach here at Miami University where you're learning the right way. Do things the right way and just go from there. Because anything else is, um, I, I think, is fool's gold. I think one of the other questions we really haven't touched on today, but I Another problem that I see in general that's crept into sports as much as it has to news is just the problem of, I think sometimes with different media outlets, their own bias that they bring to the table uh, can be, I think, a real problem to getting the factual information out there that we want in the in the way that a, that a good journalist sure. would want to do. And how much of a battle is that today, where? Different media have their own of their own idea of how the news or how sports should be should be told. Well, it sounds like you could have been part of my lecture here last <laughs> month because I talked about this. <laughs> I wish I'd have been there. Yeah, and, and uh, you know, and I always tell in my class, I have a whole session on this, and I always tell the students that the first thing you should do, and this is not only journalism but this is life in general, is find out where the sacred cows are, because the sacred cows are there. And it's because all of these these news entities nowadays they're they're own, they're owned by somebody, run by somebody. For instance, take ESPN, and, and I know nobody from ESPN is listening here because they sent me a paycheck. <laughs> but I mean, ESPN is basically owned by Donald Duck and Mickey Mouse. Okay, Disney World. Okay, the happiest place on earth. So, do you think they want a lot of negative things? No. Okay, you may think that ESPN is being critical, but they're not being as critical as you think. One of the things I point out to students all the time is that we only write about 30% of what we know. 
70% we don't write about for various reasons, but a lot of it is what you're alluding to is because of who you're working for. you got to be very careful of uh, who they are in bed with, okay, mm-hmm. and what's going on. Uh, you know, it's, it's, it's not journalistically ethical, but it's just the way it is. John Baylor, while we go back, we got time for a couple more questions from you and Richard. So, you know, as, as someone is thinking about a career in, in sports journalism, what are some of the skills that they that you might recommend that they they dig into? What courses they might take to increase their skills, not only in writing, but maybe in terms of doing some of the the analytic, understanding some of the analytics that that might be relevant for the sports. One of one of my constant uh, uh, things I tell students, and I just did this earlier today. You should, we were talking about the importance of reading, writing and reading. And I said that what you, should, what you should read is everything. To become a good journalist, not just sports journalist, but become a good journalist, you got to be proficient at everything. So that includes analytics, everything. And, and certainly now, you, gotta be, you have to be, become uh, uh, very, very knowledgeable. And one reason you got to become very knowledgeable is because of the obvious, that the more knowledgeable you become, the better you be- become. But we are in a very change, a world that's changing very quickly, and the numbers are a big part of that. So if you are not keeping up with the times and knowledge of what's going on, and in this case the number, the number aspect when it comes to sports, you're going to be left behind. So I would say it's basically that, is that, that besides the writing and the reading, of course, just be knowledgeable in everything and keep your head on the swivel. Richard Campbell. So... Uh... So should journalism majors take statistics? Oh, no question about it. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, and I know they don't want to hear that, but yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Any, anything that involves numbers, anything, anything that involves anything for that matter. Because any, every, think about it. Every aspect of society, when you talk about sports writing, takes place in sports writing. You know, the good, the bad, and the ugly. So, and certainly the numbers have gotten to be a huge part of it. And I, and I ask it because sometimes we have journalism students who fear numbers. I mean, they're, but they end up having to write stories that have numbers in them, and they, you know, we want them to do the best job they can. Well, you know, one, here, here's one aspect of it. Of it. Let, let's look at, look, at, look at the numbers. Look at the salaries. We're talking about huge salaries in sports. You got Kobe Bryant who's making $25 million. And then you got to ask yourself, well, first of all, you got to know the numbers that are involved with that. You got to know about the salary cap. You got to understand how that works nowadays and the ramifications of that. Okay. You have to understand why is Kobe Bryant getting $25 million in his last year? Uh, you know, you got to know that the, I mean, here's a guy that once scored 81 points in a game, the second highest point total in, in history in the NBA. Uh, Clayton Kershaw. The picture of the L.A. Dodgers, okay, the, the numbers that involved with him. You know, a guy that ERA is so huge in baseball. I mean, here's a guy that whose ERA was under two, uh, two straight years, and last year he, he blew up to like 2.11, you know, blowing up. <laughs> being facetious. So, yeah, those are all numbers that you got to know because when you're a sports writer, and again, going back to the big picture, salaries, salaries have gotten so huge, you got to know the reasons behind why they're getting these increased salaries, and that's where the statistics come into to play. National sports columnist and commentator Terrence Moore has been our special guest on Stats and Stories today. Terrence, thank you very much for your insights. We greatly appreciate it. Thank you. And if you'd like to share your thoughts on our program, you can send an email to us at statsandstories at miamioh.edu. Be sure to listen for future editions of Stats and Stories, where we explore the statistics behind the stories and the stories behind the statistics.